John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Philip LeDuc. Dr. LeDuc is at Carnegie Mellon University, where his academic appointment is in mechanical engineering as a professor of ME. He also has academic appointments in biological sciences, biomedical engineering, and computational biology in the School of Computer Science. Dr. LeDuc, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a very interesting area of study. I guess I could generally characterize it at the intersection of mechanical engineering and biology, and I think that this is probably best characterized as a new emerging field of disruptive science and engineering. Perhaps you could just introduce our audience to a little bit of your interest, and then we can dwell on some of the more specific aspects. I'm actually trained as a traditional mechanical engineer. You know, one would call mechanical engineering planes, trains, and automobiles. I've gotten much more interested in the intersection of mechanical engineering and biology. And biology is absolutely phenomenally interesting to me, and and this is part of the reason. So there's lots of fantastic work being done here in regenerative medicine, and I definitely work in mammalian cell areas. But I've gotten very interested in other areas, such as in microorganisms. So why microorganisms? Because microorganisms are amazingly robust and uniquely developed. One great example of this is actually in the Gulf oil spill. So one of the reasons that the Gulf oil spill turned out to actually not be as bad as it could have been is not because as engineers we were so unbelievably intelligent and were able to solve this problem by throwing billions of dollars at it, although that did help. But one of the reasons was there's actually an oil-eating microorganism that nature has evolved over millions of years. And so it was phenomenal that nature actually already had one of the solutions for the problem that we created, and yet we're just trying to figure out how biology works. There's other great examples of this. There's energy-generating bacteria. And these things are pretty amazing. If you take a bucket of mud and you put these bacteria into the bucket of mud and you screw a light bulb into it, the light bulb actually turns on. So it's spectacular that biology not only can create something that eats oil, but at the same time can actually light up a light itself without the need for anything else. Then you think about things like thermophiles or extremophiles that live at the bottom of the ocean in thermal vents and and not only survive but thrive in those high-temperature, high-sulfur areas. I couldn't even imagine building a man-made system as an engineer that could do that. And you can go even further. We play with these systems called magnetotactic bacteria. These are actually bacteria that have created these little magnetite uh, nanoparticles that align inside of the cell body of these bacteria that can sense and respond to the magnetic field gradients. It's like a compass inside of a cell. You might say, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, but is it actually useful? It actually is because these actually exist in homing pigeons. This is one of the reasons homing pigeons can actually find their way around um, is using this magnetic sensing capability. And so biology is fascinating. So my question is always, how can we actually use principles, as I'm trained as a mechanical engineer, mechanical engineering principles to apply it to biology? So I abstract to think about the way that I think about cells. Cells might be the most complicated thing that's been put together before, or even complex. I tend to think about planes, trains, and automobiles as a mechanical engineer, and a plane might be the most complicated system ever put together by man. It has about a million parts. If you take a look at a single cell, if you do an order of magnitude calculation, it has about a billion molecules inside of a single cell. 
So that is probably one of the more complex systems if you think about it from man. You might say, well, where does mechanical engineering play a role in these types of systems? Well, in mechanical engineering, we have hundreds of years of work in areas like solid mechanics. Solid mechanics is basically how things break. Obviously, this is very important inside of airplanes, but of course, this is very important inside of places like regenerative medicine. The whole world of bone and muscle, even mechanical problems inside the brain, such as diffuse axonal injury, are mechanically governed. You can take a look at things like fluid dynamics. Uh, fluid dynamics is actually very important inside of hydraulics in planes. Obviously, fluid dynamics, the way fluid flows, is very important inside of arterial disease. You know, fluid flow, your blood pumps, goes through the heart. There's fluid flow all over the place. Another interesting area is actually in control theory. Control theory is actually what makes your car be able to drive on cruise control. So what it does is it senses and responds to the speed you're going, and it adjusts based upon that. And, and you might look at this as, oh, that's a pretty normal thing. But this is also why airplanes fly themselves. They have automated control, which is basically it is getting inputs from all these different sensors and responding. Cells do this all the time. They get all kinds of sensory inputs, whether it's chemical, mechanical, thermal, and they respond to them in different ways. They can actually go into apoptosis with the cell death, proliferation, they can go into quiescence, they can go into motility, which of course is very important in places like cancer. And so these mechanical engineering approaches actually can be applied to biology in a number of different ways. And so this tends to be the way that my lab looks at this in terms of a disruptive approaches. We look at biology as kind of as systems. There are systems that's no different than an airplane, a train, or a car that I would look at as a mechanical engineer, except now these are biological systems. These are mammalian cells. These could be anything from neurons to stem cells to cardiac cells to bone cells and also microorganisms. So they, they kind of go across the board in terms of how you can actually attack these from a mechanical engineering perspective. So Dr. LeDuc, you introduced this very nicely to some of these pioneering areas, which clearly are on the frontier of science, but I know you have a commitment to see things mature, perhaps in the long term, but certainly to see things mature to practical and adaptable products that can be used by society. How do you balance that? It's actually very difficult. A lot of the projects that we work on are really long-term. So this is the difference. What we try to do is we try to develop the approaches and then start working and talking to different industries to take these into products. Um, as an academic, although I do have a background in management and strategic consulting, I also realize what I'm good and not good at. One of the things I tend to be not as good at is in actually becoming the CEO of a company and taking it forward. I seem to be pretty good at coming up with technologies and then working with companies to actually try to turn these into you know, different approaches. So some practical examples of you know, where one might imagine this being useful. I collaborate very closely with a person at the University of Pittsburgh named Johnny Heward, who's part of McGowan as well. So Johnny is famous inside of stem cell biology. So I was working with Johnny one day, and he was telling me about how you take stem cells, that you inject them into hearts to actually have them repair. And so I told Johnny, I said, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer. You're about to take a stem cell, and you're about to take it, and you're about to put it in one of the most mechanically governed systems that's out there, which is the heart. So the heart has mechanics going on all the time. It's pumping all of the time. And I said, I bet you 10 to 1 that if you actually change the loading history, i.e., you add mechanics to the cell before you place it into the heart, that you will actually get a better response of these cells. And so why is that practically useful? Because what you're trying to do is repair hearts in the best way. And it turns out we went off and we did it, and it turns out we're right, that if you actually 
mechanically stimulate cells before you place them into the heart, these stem cells, you actually get a very much increased response of the heart itself. So that's a practical place where, you know, you can actually take knowledge as a mechanical engineer and apply it across the board. There's another area that we just published relatively recently on these energy-generating bacteria. And so what we did was, um, the way these energy-generating bacteria are used is they're basically placed in these large vats. And there's one of them that's basically an anode and one's in a cathode, and it basically captures electron transfer. Well, what I said to my collaborators, I bet you we could use mechanical engineering principles in micro-slash-nanotechnology and actually create a small-scale energy-generating system. So we put these energy-generating bacteria into something called the microfluidic system, and we made the world's smallest microbial fuel cell, which is basically a fuel cell but using energy from cells versus anything else. You know, this is one of those things where you can envision this in a very long-term future. It's not happening next year. A long-term future of a way to power a system, one perhaps that you could actually interface with the body, where the body's actually giving it the chemicals that are needed to actually create the energy. Because these microorganisms, what they do is they take chemistry, and as part of their natural cell process, they donate electrons, which you can actually capture to generate electricity. So, Dr. LeDuc, you've shared a couple of examples that relate to both regenerative medicine and, and certainly some broader applications and implications as well. Just very briefly, how does one mechanically stimulate heart cells before you inject them? It's not as difficult as you think it is. We built a device that's basically like a balloon. So what you get out of a balloon is if, you, if you're blowing on a balloon and you inflate it, you're basically stretching the membrane of the balloon. And so what we basically did is we created a system that you could put cells on top of the balloon. It's not exactly a balloon, but it's the same principle. You blow it up and you basically stretch these cells. And we stretch them exactly at the same rate that the heart pumps. That's how we mechanically stimulate them. So, you know, a lot of it's actually intuition in these cases. As a mechanical engineer, that's just it was intuitive for me to actually just use mechanical stimulation in that way. And you can imagine, you know, putting cells on a balloon-like system, stretching it, and then now taking those and placing them in the body. Um, it's just an intuitive guess. In this case, it made a lot of sense, and it turns out it was right. Interesting. So if we can wander away from uh, regenerative medicine a bit here in this discussion... Uh, I know that you are doing some work that's now supported by the Gates Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? About nine months ago or so, a group from a company came to me and they told me, they said, cell mechanics matters in whether people like food or not. And I kind of smiled and I'm like, are you serious? And at first, I actually didn't believe it. And this is, by the way, often where disruptive technologies come from, in something that is just so out of the domain that you actually haven't thought about it before. Because cell mechanics is traditionally applied to things like we talked about, stem cells, neural cells, bone cells, very health-driven issues. So this is health in a different direction. And he said, look, when you take a food and you mash it up, you know, you take your blender, you take something, you actually add mechanics to the food itself. And depending upon those mechanics, you can actually change whether people like the food or not. And, and I sat there and I'm like, oh, oh, so this is plant cell mechanics. And I started thinking back to when I grew up. Now, the amazing thing was, I had a great example. I'm from the Midwest, and so I, I love mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes are one of my favorite foods. And my mother makes these fantastic mashed potatoes. And then one day, 20, 30 years ago, the Cuisinart came around. And so she put the potatoes in, and instead of mashing them, she hit 10, which was puree. So she mixed this up, 
the mashed potatoes turned into this soupy, gooey mess, which was the most disgusting mashed potatoes I've ever had in my life. So you look at that and you're like, wait a minute, that's the same chemical composition. It's the same food. It's the same everything. You've now just changed the mechanics on this. You've gone from hand mashing them to blending these things up to a high degree. If you actually think about that, that's the way you can change the mechanics, can actually change plant cell mechanics, which change whether you like the food or not. So I started talking to my, my student, Mary Beth Wilson, a phenomenally talented PhD student, and we said, well, what can we do with this idea further? And so we started brainstorming, and the idea came about that what if you actually had a plant in a third world country that had high nutritional value, but wasn't eaten because people just didn't like the taste of it? And so the idea is if you could actually change the mechanics on that plant in the terms of the way they actually prepared it, you could actually increase their ability to eat it and help nutrition. Now, why is that kind of interesting? It's kind of interesting because what you end up getting in this particular situation is you end up getting the ability you don't have to import new food to this country. You basically use something that's actually indigenous in the country and you basically improve upon it so that people will actually use it. So it turns out, after doing research, there's actually numerous plants that exist in Africa. One of the ones that we're looking at is called amaranth, which actually has a high nutritional value, but in general is not eaten over there for a number of different reasons. Well, Mary Beth actually went further and she started digging into it, and it turns out mechanics can change nutrition inside the way you prepare food. What happens is, when you actually break the food up, you can actually change whether or not some of the vitamins and nutrients are actually exposed for the digestive system to actually get to before it passes through your body. An example of this is carrots. If you actually chop carrots versus you boil carrots, you change its nutritional value. And so, once again, it's the same food. You're just preparing it differently, and it can be mechanically driven. And so that's actually what we're looking at right now, which is can you actually use mechanics? And we're looking at it at a very basic science perspective. We're using things like atomic force microscopy, ELISA assays, but we're looking at it in the long term to actually build up this idea of can we actually use mechanics to improve nutrition for children and infants in third world countries such as Africa. And actually off the back end, as I'm an educator as well at a university, we're actually going to be teaching a course in the next year called Culinary Mechanics, where we're hoping to partner also with local chefs to induce this kind of system. I understand this is a relatively new project. What's the term of the current funding? The Gates Foundation just released the embargo about three weeks ago on this. So it's about as new as you can come in terms of this. These are high-risk projects. That seems to be, as one of my friends said, I'm much better at getting funding for high-risk projects than conventional projects, so I take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, but it's going to go for about 18 months, and then there's a phase two that will last another three years if the idea is actually successful in moving forward. A curious question as I think about developing countries and this fascinating idea that you've introduced. In general, modifying foods with mechanical forces typically requires things like blenders and the like. Yeah. And as a generalization, I have the impression that blenders aren't very common in countries where you want to implement this kind of technology. It's a great point. So there's two initial ways we're thinking about this. Number one, mechanics can actually be applied to a wide range of different ways, not just blenders. So I've actually done a mission strip over in Africa before. And you know, when you're over there, it's basically like a mortar and pestle, the way they actually mash things up, right? And that is mechanics, because they're basically grinding these things up. Now, given it's by hand and it takes a long time, 
but you are grinding the food up and that is very mechanically governed. And there's different ways, you know, cutting is mechanics. You know, when you're cutting something, that is mechanics. And so a lot of food preparation is actually mechanically based. But no one seems to have actually looked at this in terms of these plants in Africa. Basically, they've always done it kind of ad hoc. You try a recipe, per se. You try it, you see if it works. But you don't try to understand the scientific principles behind it, which helps you actually innovate to figure out how do you optimize the system for the maximum nutritional value and maximum taste. You just kind of try and don't try. And that works to a degree, but science has often shown how you can actually make huge advances by understanding the scientific principles behind it and then applying these to a larger context. The other way is actually developing low-cost types of mechanical systems that you can send over there. So I don't think one would send a Cuisinart over there, but you could easily see creating a Cuisinart-like system with a bunch of gears where, you know, it's like one of those old manual rotating blenders that you have. You could create something like that and where the energy actually comes from the person themselves versus having to plug it into something else. That's another approach that we're considering, but it depends on what ends up working out. Sometimes I develop technologies because it's just cool, and then later on you find the application. In some cases, the hypothesis drives the application. I actually think both of them are very useful. It's certainly a fascinating endeavor, and I see potential opportunities already, and you're just at the start of this study. But I have to commend you for putting the science first and then working the applications based on what the science says. As you say, it's not typically done, particularly in this particular field. Yeah, I always get into this debate with people about science versus application. I think both of them are very valid ways to actually tackle problems. I'm very scientifically governed, but sometimes what happens is you develop the science and the technology comes along with it. I always use the example of the DNA microchip as a great example. So before people actually started working on the gene chip, really what they did was use different blotting techniques to look at 10, 15, 20 different genes and how they responded. And so the human genome is, what, about 30,000 genes is what they did. So it's really hard to look at the whole genome in terms of the way it functions. But with the development of technology for this gene chip, which was based upon micro nanotechnology, printing these different DNA libraries, you can now look at the entire change of the genome under, for a person. And so entire fields sprang out of this, like bioinformatics. And so in that particular case, the technology actually drove the entire scientific field. So sometimes technology drives science, and sometimes science drives technology. And so I actually don't think there's a one-way approach that actually works in these particular cases. So in this whole Gates Foundation, we didn't determine the application and say, okay, well, we're going to you know, solve the problem in third world countries. It was based upon someone coming to us and just saying, hey, mechanics matters in food. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, we actually took it and we said, okay, well, what else can you do with this? How can you use the same scientific underpinnings and apply it to different application areas? And lots of people do this. I always like this quote. There was a guy named Cam Leong who the first time I actually started doing research when I was doing my PhD at Hopkins told me, he said, I envy you at this point because we were about to start working in cell mechanics and my advisor and I had never done it before. He, and I go, really? You, you envy me because I don't know what I'm about to go do? And he goes, Look, sometimes not knowing the field you're about to walk into is actually better than knowing the field because sometimes when you're trained in a field, you think you know everything in terms of all the limitations and everything you can and can't do. And sometimes by not knowing what your limitations are that you will tackle things and do things that are actually completely different. And I still use that to this day. I don't think you can walk into just any field, but I think that you can use the depth of whatever you are. I'm a mechanical engineer and apply it to all kinds of different systems 
if you find good collaborators and good people to work with who are able to fill in the blanks that you actually don't have. And that's the whole world of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary science. It's just part of who I am and, and the way I do it. And I think that's the way often disruptive science and technology actually comes about. So you shared some interesting philosophy in terms of how you go about projects and also in terms of training people. Any other comments in this regard? One thing I often find inside of going after these new technologies is there's a certain intimidation factor with not knowing about the system you're about to walk into. And one of the hardest things is to actually get over that intimidation and kind of move forward. Because what happens is you take basic principles that you have learned and you apply it to a system that you may not know very well. I talk about the six levels of learning. The first three are kind of getting information and being able to spit it back out. But the higher levels of learning, levels four, five, and six, are the ones we don't use as much that we should use more and more inside of some of these scientific underpinnings. Well, I take that back. We use them all the time, but it's just extending these. One of them is an analysis where you're actually breaking down a system to try to understand its individual components. The next one is synthesis, where you're actually putting back together those components that you actually understand just in a new way. And the last one is evaluation, which is now you're taking what you synthesize and you're evaluating is this good or bad. So we all do this all the times in our lives. And I use these basic underpinnings as the place where you tackle disruptive science, except when I'm doing analysis, synthesis, and evaluation, I go after areas where I tend not to be as comfortable. In fact, probably the more uncomfortable I am, the more likely I am to do it. I tell my students, the crazier the idea you propose to me, the more likely I am to actually pursue that because I'm thrilled by the unknown. And I think that's where a really grand, exciting things can happen. Whether or not they actually work, that's okay. High-risk kind of places are, are good to be. I think one of the funding agencies that I always enjoy the quote is, if more than 20% of our ideas are being successful, then we're not going high-risk enough. And I always like that quote because it just shows, try to push the frontiers and boundaries. I think this whole issue of risk and rewards is a very important yeah. one. And Sometimes we tend to optimize outcomes and we wind up with incremental improvements instead of step improvements. I'll abstract back to my management consulting days in terms of the way some people think about this. And I guess the way that I think about this is it's easier to take low-risk approaches if your only metric is success, not high-risk success. Because if I take a project and I take an incremental step off that project, and I already know pretty much what's going to happen in that. My chances of success are going to be really high. And people get rewarded for this, which is fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of companies function this way. They would rather have you, if you're a manager, and you say, well, I can take a really high-risk direction, which would have high reward, but if it fails, I'm going to look like a bad manager. If I take an incremental step where I know it's going to work, then my metric is, oh, I was successful. You know, you're highly successful that gets rewarded as well. And that's a really weird, almost uh, paradox that occurs. I think NASA actually had something similar to this happen a number of years ago where they made a strategic decision where instead of making a really expensive satellite that they were going to send up, and I'm not 100% sure about this one, so instead of getting 100% success or 99% success and making things extremely redundant and thus very, very costly, what they said was, we're going to have a certain amount of things that don't work. You know, we're going to have 60% success, but we're going to cut the cost of this thing by 10 times. So if you do an economic analysis of that, that that's actually pretty good. You end up saving money that ends up working over time. The problem with this is, you know, uh, I believe they followed this path, and then what happened is one of the satellites failed. And so when one of the satellites failed, the first thing that came into the news was NASA spends all this money on something that fails. 
And that's what caught the headlines, and I believe they've actually gone away from that policy. I don't know, but that was another great example from another area where you're going into something that is higher risk kind of projects. You have a lot of them that don't succeed, but the ones that do succeed are paradigm changers. So, Dr. LeDuc, this has been a fascinating discussion both about philosophy and strategy in terms of development of technology and also some very thought-provoking examples on how you're applying this methodology to uh, both regenerative medicine as well as to other important fields. As I think about your discussion of disruptive technology, it reminds me of the recently announced journal on disruptive science and technology that Marianne Liebert is the publisher and Dr. Alan Russell is the editor. And I recall from an earlier conversation that you're actually going to contribute to that journal, which clearly is an appropriate enterprise considering what we've learned in this discussion. So I thank you for joining us today, sharing your insights and some of the progress you've made and wish you continued success in these important endeavors. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who sponsors this podcast series. Remind you, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again with another interesting interview, best wishes to our audience. Thank you. Thank you.